0: Oh, yeah, that, Jeremy, isn't that a Ford Mustang
1: 5.0? I was thinking like AOL 5.0. They're <laughs> rolling in my AOL. Hey, we're rolling. We should start. <laughs>
0: Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host Sean Hartman, and I'm joined by former public access, Harry Krishna, TV evangelist Peter Cook, Woo! <laughs> and of course, foster parent for abandoned ventriloquist dummies, Jeremy Ruggles. Woo! <laughs> did you might did we did just you just out. killed it? You just killed the whole fucking thing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Sorry about that, guys.
0: You, you might
2: have to use other microphones that aren't the ones I in front killed of us.
0: everything. Yeah, I think you just shut down the power for like the entire city block. Wow. Wow. Woo.
2: Well, we're here. And what are we talking about today, Sean?
0: Well, as soon as I find my spreadsheet, then we can start. Oh my God. Here it is. <laughs> we are talking about 10cc's dentist office. Art rock, yacht rock, 1975 masterpiece, the original soundtrack.
1: Did you say Dennis Office? Yeah.
0: Why do you say that? Because that's where you're going to hear the single from this album. Is that true? Peter, I would say can so. You confirm?
2: I would say this is Dennis Office rock. Deni- yeah. Is Dental. that the
0: whole thing? That's like the stereotype for yacht rock. That's like the other thing people say is Dennis Office music.
1: Wow. Hygiene rock. I'm out of that loop. Sorry, guys. All when right, was, when was the last
2: time you went to the dentist?
1: <sighs> the harsh truth. Two years ago. Damn. Before I lost my Medicaid. Now I can't afford to go.
0: Damn. I mean, it's been like, I don't know, 12 or 13 years for me, so whatever.
2: <laughs> it's been a year for me, so I guess I'm the most recent to have heard this song in a dental chair. Okay. Well, I'm glad
1: we had this conversation. That's cool. Peter has some great pearly whites. I just want to, you know. Throw that out there.
2: Well, thank you, Jeremy.
1: Confirmed best teeth on this podcast. True.
0: So, Peter, I know you're a fan of this album and this band, right?
2: Yeah. uh, Going back to when we were working at Corner Record Shop in Kalamazoo together, did I introduce you to I'm Not In Love?
0: I think so. I I kind of had an interesting approach to record collecting and, and music research where growing up I didn't listen to the radio a lot and... Both my parents had kind of specific music tastes, so there's a lot of things that I feel like everyone experienced growing up or just heard in passing that I was oblivious to. So there's been a lot of times where I'll buy a record and be listening to it and like, oh, I love this song. This one will be like, you've never heard this before? Like, this was a huge hit. It was number one for a year or something. And I don't know, it's just been fun to uh, approach record collecting with that kind of innocence at times. but So yeah, I wasn't familiar with that song before hearing it, and I don't know if I listened to the album first or if you just kind of recommended it to me or what. It
2: may have actually been when we were going through trying to figure out what all the unknown-to-us titles were, and we found that Godly and Cream album and then realized they were from 10cc, and I, I may have said, oh, they did I'm Not in Love and then showed that to you.
0: That... Sounds exactly right. Yeah, Yeah, we found Golly and Cream's Freeze Frame, which I highly recommend that record. I don't know if it's worth $5 or not, so we may not be allowed to do a full episode on it. But yeah, we found this album with this weird kind of artwork on it and we're like what does this sound like and put it on and we're totally blown away and <laughs> then yeah you realize the 10 cc connection yeah and, and, the- and i thought well i've seen 10 cc around a ton and just never gave them the time of day so maybe it's time to check them out and i I've think a, a big fan ever since
2: i think a lot of their albums you can find for a pretty an inexpensive cost right or am i mistaken by
3: that
0: yeah this is the easiest one to find because it has their biggest hit there's only four records that i stand behind in the 10 cc catalog we can get into that more later and you can find them all for cheap i've found all of these in bargain bids at times when i first started collecting it took me the longest to find their first self-titled album because it was a bigger hit in the uk than it was the states but since then i've seen it pop up for cheap occasionally
2: I'm sure Deceptive bends you can get for a pretty cheap penny because it has the things we do for love on it.
0: Yeah, the later stuff after Godly and Crame left is a lot cheaper and also not as good. Yeah. So, Jeremy, what was your relationship with 10cc? I think you have mentioned before that you're not convinced that you actually like this record. Had you heard any 10cc material before this?
1: I'm going to tell you the entirety of my experience with 10cc before this. I was visiting my father at his house and he was watching I want to say the movie Step Brothers but it might have just been some other trash movie and there was a song in it that he liked and he's like can you look up in your internet device what song that was and I, I actually went And got that sound clip from my dad. That was my dad right there (laughs) that I just played for you.
0: Yeah, I can confirm that.
1: And I looked it up, and it was a band called 10CC, and Mm -hmm. I was like, that was 10CC. And he's like, oh. And that was
2: the extent of your experience with 10CC up until Sean said this was his selection.
1: Correct. And I very briefly read the Wikipedia about them at that time. And was grossed out with their name and then just wanted nothing to do with it. And yesterday I listened to this album and have so many mixed feelings in me right now. (laughs) The production is super interesting Mm -hmm. and the songwriting arrangements are super interesting also. And... I also feel like they are the reason Ween exists, and I don't like them because of it.
0: So, so this may be the first album we've profiled in the show where not all three of us are fully on board.
1: We needed that Correct. to happen. I'm like halfway on board at best. Yeah. And every time I hear the word "parry" in this, <laughs> I just get angrier and I'm less on board. That's fair. I had a
2: feeling that this would be the the divisive record when you chose this. I, I knew that you and I would like it. Yeah. But I, I this band, I really can't fault people for not liking them. Definitely. Even though I like them. There are a number of musicians that I'm into where I feel that way. But in particular, 10CC are just, they have a lot of shtick going on in their sound uh, that I don't know that everyone can really... Vibe on the hat.
0: Well, before we keep talking about the music while leaving people in the dark, let's go ahead and play the first single released off this album, which has plenty of shtick for everyone, and that would be "Life Is a Minestrone." <laughs> I know but it was it was the good kind of dumb right it was great
1: i don't know like <laughs> it's the production is brilliant straight up definitely love the production it was really wild and out there and inspired bands clearly that i do like but also i feel like is the root of a lot of bands that just make me angry mm-hmm. when i hear them
2: do you do you think I uh- If you tried to, and I don't expect you to be able to do this, but if you place this in a historical context, and I I tried to do this.
1: You want me to get Marxist on this?
2: (laughs) Yes. When I thought about, you know, I think the 10CC started in the early 70s is when they themselves, when they got together. I know Graham Goldman had been writing songs for bands, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. But if I think about artists... There's kind of a cornucopia of sounds going on. If I had to try to compare them to contemporaries of theirs or people that were a few years ahead of them, the three artists that I was thinking of were Sparks, Mm. Todd Rundgren, and Steely Dan. It's interesting
0: that you mention those, because another really big comparison, there's a lot of theories that this album was majorly influential to the band Queen, who later this year released Bohemian Rhapsody. And some people even argue that Bohemian Rhapsody wouldn't really exist without this album.
2: Yeah, and I'm Not In Love in particular. Yeah, especially. Yeah. Hmm. I can I can vibe on that. I can totally agree with that. Yeah, I guess this was about a year or so before A Night at the Opera was released. This was 75? Yeah. And I think that came out in 76. Okay. So, so it was
0: like recorded later that yeah. year kind of thing. So it... This album dropped, and then a few months later, Queen was in the studio. Yeah, let's
1: put a million tracks on one song, (laughs) and it'll be a hit. True, and let's make it like a piecemeal, through composed thing, unlike all of their songs before it. Like clearly, something knocked them out of the their formulaic route. Mm
0: -hmm. And also, Bohemian Rhapsody has a lot of kind of dumb elements to it, but I don't think people think about that as much anymore because it's such an iconic song and everyone's like oh this is a masterpiece but there's a lot of dumb elements to it (laughs) true yeah operatic Mm -hmm.
2: sections i'm impressed um, that
1: none neither of you did i wanted to sing some dumb stuff from it i didn't and i'm glad you guys didn't either yeah there's no need for that so i appreciate you guys just wanted to say that (laughs) out loud i'm glad to hear it oh um, did i interrupt sorry sean
0: back to the decisiveness of this record i i have picked up on that i've, I've been championing this band for years and recommending it to a lot of people and it's just a total crapshoot of whether people are gonna like it i've had people that i would have bet plenty of money that they would have loved it just been like this sucks why did you make me listen to this and then other people are like i love it new favorite band and you know it's all over the place Personally, I don't often like music that's jokey and humorous. I don't like most of the Frank Zappa stuff with vocals. I don't listen to Ween either. But 10CC just does it for me. And I don't know. I don't know why. you I mean, a sociopath. I kind of know why, but yeah, yeah. that must be it. Well,
2: I was especially as a teenager a big ween fan and i think what really drew me to them and this yeah i i do sometimes enjoy humor particularly when i was younger but the particularly the variety became more world weary
1: (laughs) grown out of humor yeah all humor is dead for peter cook now
0: (laughs) it's
2: very true you can tell by my demeanor on this podcast
1: (laughs) pure history for him now
2: uh, more so, though, what attracts me to bands such as 10CC, Queen, Ween, is versatility, variety. The fact that it almost sounds like a compilation. Now, there are yeah. elements in 10CC that make it very distinctly them, mm-hmm. <laughs> certain voices in particular. But they obviously are drawing influence from a wide spectrum of music
0: yeah and i've said before in this show that i am always drawn more to the textural elements of music more than the lyrical content which would probably explain why i didn't really even pick up on that as much at first i was just very interested in the production techniques and the musicianship and the variety of sounds and how well this album flows while still hitting a pretty wide range of influences. We've talked about the hit single, let's go ahead and play that and then we can get into some of the history and some of the recording techniques that were used.
2: Sean, by the way, it, A Night at the Opera was 1975. It was late 1975.
0: Yeah, it, it was so close, and this song was so prevalent in culture at that time. There's no way they couldn't have been influenced in some way by that song and the recording techniques used.
1: True. I noticed in this recording something I noticed in some like mid to late 70s albums of the use of binaural recording techniques, it's called. And I'll just describe this briefly for the listeners and non-audio nerds. But the idea basically is, you know, normally you see like a microphone gets put in front of something. And then somebody came along and was like, when we're listening, we're listening with two ears. That's why they make stereo. And then somebody was like, well, if we're listening with two ears, let's put two microphones one on each side and pointed at whatever thing we're trying to listen at. So that was kind of the birth of binaural recording. Sometimes you'll even see in studios like a styrofoam head so that it's like exactly the right spacing and distance apart. And there's something between the microphones to simulate if your head were there between the microphones. But I've noticed a lot of techniques, especially in the first song that's very prominent, where things are kind of skittering around your head. And it's uh, really kind of, I feel like people got away from it after the 70s. And even nowadays, like everything is in stereo, but people intentionally mix things do not sound weird if it's not in a stereo environment, largely because of cell phones and people listening on their cell phones there's no stereo spread so if you try and do all these weird tricky things it just sounds dumb now
2: yeah it's really weird to me that as we go into the future
1: our listening experience is reduced yeah this is it's like a brief period of time from like mid this month had to be like very early in that and you hear it in like seminal albums, like dark side of the moon and stuff. You'll hear some of these elements being experimented with, but then it really kind of dies out with the 80s sound. And nowadays, like everything gets, starts getting really compressed. Yeah. Everything's like compressed and milked to like the middle of everything. Like has to be able to sound good on a hi-fi system and it has to sound good out of somebody's cell phone and Mm -hmm. out of their car and out of overhead speakers at the grocery store so like everything nowadays is just mixed for like the middle experience not the most wild experience I have
2: want to have a nice middle of the road listening experience <laughs> yeah.
1: if you haven't
0: guessed yet Jeremy is the one that records and edits all of the episodes of this show and
1: <laughs> yes. sound dork
0: but yeah you're totally right on that I, I really feel like culturally it used to be kind of a coming-of-age status symbol to save up and buy your first nice stereo and that was a big point of pride with everybody and whereas now I feel like the money that would have been spent on a stereo system is spent on a cell phone
1: yeah and that's cool for other reasons sure not for listening to good quality music with interesting recording techniques
2: Mm -hmm. and I I feel like this song is a prime example of 1970s production and and this was cutting edge at the time
0: definitely i want to talk a bit about the recording and production of this song in particular i'm not in love a lot of people know this song not as much the younger generation i feel like this song and this album is quickly being forgotten about or relegated to Specific areas of music history, like we talked about the, can't the imagine dentist office. Why. Yeah, <laughs> can't
1: even figure out why. <laughs>
0: when I've talked to people about this band, almost every single time someone has known this song, they don't know about the the big unique element of the production of this song, which is that's not a keyboard or a synthesizer making all the background sounds. Those are two hundred and fifty six vocal samples. Good lord. Yeah. And the history of that is 10CC is basically made up of two different songwriting pairs of people. You had Kevin Godley and Lull Cream were the art school students, more experimental, forward-thinking artists. And then Eric Stewart and Graham Goldman were the more pop-oriented, more straight-laced, if you will, musicians. And the story... Is that Stewart and Goldman wrote this song? And initially, they thought of it as a mostly acoustic kind of bossa nova feel. Like they recorded the demos with a lot of hand percussion and a kind of light acoustic feel to it. And uh, they brought it to Godly and Cream
1: and they said that they were
0: just painfully underwhelmed
1: (laughs) by the song. (laughs) I can hear it right now. Like you just described it, and I can hear that song are you underwhelmed in bossa Nova, and i'm very <laughs> underwhelmed like yeah I, I could hear them just lazily rattling it off that way uh-huh
0: but yeah they, they recognized that there was something there that there was an element worth keeping in the song but it needed to be radically reimagined if they were going to put their stamp on it and allow it on the record and the compromise they came up with was okay the backing track Has to be vocal samples if we're going to record this song. So they spent a full week doing nothing but recording hundreds of vocal samples, bouncing them down, making tape loops, and then the final recording process was each one of them had three channels on the studio mixer, and they put a row of tape across the bottom of all the channels so that you couldn't turn any of the channels down to completely off. They could, like, the lowest they would go was still low in the mix. And each member of the band got three channels to raise and lower the different vocal sounds during the live recording of the song. So they play back the other instruments and all of them faded up and down the different notes and vocal loops that were going on to fit with the song, which is why it has this flowing kind of feel to it, a very watery vibe going on. And if you listen to it really loud in a nice system, there's tons of vocal harmonics going on And weird harmonies and sounds and everything blends together in a really interesting way.
2: Yeah, this was the days when the mixdown had to be done all hands on deck, especially with a big song with a lot of tracks like
0: this. Definitely. The volume of a track changed in the middle of the song. You had to sit there and make that change while it was being cut to the master tape.
2: Something that I've never been 100% clear on, Sean, and you can probably answer this for me. Obviously, yeah, I know that there's the kind of ongoing... Uh, throughout the whole track of all the voices. But are the things that sound like synthesizers, are those vocal tracks where like, Are those vocal tracks as well being raised up and down, or is that a synthesizer, like a Moog or something?
0: They had the basic instrumentation as the backing track, keyboard, drums, bass. And the initial intention was to have those just to play the vocal samples too. And then after they did the first couple takes of you know live mixing the vocal samples to the instruments they decided they love the combination of those two so much so you are hearing some real instruments with the vocal samples the sounds that you might be referring to the like kind of thing that those are vocal samples as well it is the extended notes and the more like stabbing kind of vocal sounds in there
2: which to my understanding they just kind of brought them in and out as needed and Mm -hmm. those notes were all just singing all the notes of the scale i think or something
0: yeah that was what the the week of recording was was (laughs) bouncing these down into different chords and vocal scales and different sounds that could be used but that was just how these guys operated they were extremely familiar with working in studios and experimenting and that was they were just at home doing that kind of work
2: yeah it's incredible i think that is something that a lot of people just hear a nice song with lush production and don't appreciate how much was put into it
0: Mm -hmm. let's go ahead and listen to one more song and then i'll get into the history of the group and the uh influences leading up to the creation of this album
2: what do you want to hear let's go ahead
0: and hear the film of my love half an hour into the recording but we're just now going to start on the biography section and that's fine because this band rules this album's a masterpiece and jeremy you can just shut the fuck
1: up i have a question for you peter true or false did that sound like a bunch of theater kids trying to make rock music
2: i think it sounded like a band influenced by the bonzo dog doodah band
1: of course which were a bunch
2: of theater kids trying (laughs) okay
0: Like I said, the band was kind of made up of two different songwriting pairs. Godly and Cream were childhood friends, and both went to art school and college together, which makes a lot of sense. They were also big Frank Zappa fans, which I'm sure also makes a lot of sense for this, especially their early songs are much more doo-wop influenced, and you can really tell the mother's invention influence going on there.
2: You know what their big number is on this album, Jeremy? No. Your favorite song one night in paris uh. <laughs> the opening cut i'm sorry sean I knew yeah
0: you. and i i think it was uh graham goldman met Godley and Crane in in college as well and then they were involved in a handful of different recording projects they were both in the music all four of them were in the music industry at the same time and cross paths many times as they were coming up
2: i i don't mean to interject here sean but did do you have a, a list of any of the songs that graham goldman wrote that's You're my ge- very next no. note because <laughs> i didn't know until today that he wrote uh, herman's hermit's no milk today yeah which is one of my favorite hermit he herman's songs
0: had quickly become one of the most in-demand songwriters on the pop circuit at that point yeah he wrote that song he wrote yardbirds for your love yeah and he also wrote the holly's bus stop plus yeah many many other Yay. huge hit songs
2: big time
0: yeah eric stewart was also a member of wayne fontana and the mind benders which i did not realize as well it's another band you can find pretty easily especially the 45s and in 1965 the lead singer wayne left the group and eric became the lead singer and then graham goldman joined that band briefly in 1968. one of the things you kind of find with you know these two opposite influences going on in the band, is Godly and Cream brought a lot more of the real tongue in cheek kind of jokey element to a lot of what they're doing. And you can see the roots of that even from like before the band. The one thing I saw, Godly and Cream, two of their like studio project fake band names that they come up with, one was uh, Frabjoy and the Runcible Spoon, they released like one single under that name. And another project was called The Yellow Below Room Boom. Ugh.
1: Yeah. Jeremy Uh, (laughs) loves these guys. But none of the names as bad as 10CC. Yeah, we'll get to that later. Um,
0: (laughs) Another thing that makes a lot of sense for the recording techniques and the song styling is all four of the members found themselves working together in 1969. They were full-time for a few months at a place called Strawberry Studios, which became central recording studio for... A label called super k productions which was owned by Buddha records and put out a lot of the bubblegum pop bands of the day ohio express crazy elephant melody was on like that. that label yeah definitely not bubblegum pop artist but you know no. <laughs> slightly related to the scene the guys that would become 10cc became the house band and apparently did all of the instrumentation and often vocals for a lot of the hits from that album in that time period so there's a lot of hit songs from the bubblegum scene that are recredited to other artists that are basically just 10 cc there's a whole list of songs that are known that's them and speculation on others interviews with the band said they were cranking out at least 20 songs a week and just had no idea which ones were becoming hits (laughs) or not or we couldn't remember which ones they recorded on but they said all the time they would hear a song be like I think that's me singing and they would do all of it they would do even the female backing vocals would be them (laughs) on these records they got you know very familiar with being extremely versatile and working with tiny budgets and being very inventive in the studio and always being conscious of saving money like not hiring backing vocals just getting everything done on their own which i think plays into the variety of sounds and styles going on with this record and one of the other production techniques is they invented an early guitar effects thing called the Gizmotron. Are you familiar with that, Jeremy? No. It, you can only find like vintage ones at this point. Very few people remember it. It was kind of a precursor to the Ebo. Okay. It was a little machine that you would put on the bridge that had an individual motor for each string. And you could hit a button where it would make that string sound indefinitely. And their whole reason for inventing that was to not have to pay a string section to be on record. <laughs>
2: so they're really into yeah, yeah. droning notes.
0: Yeah, and just being super inventive and working with what they got. The Catalyst in Forming, the band Tencc, they had put like a joke single together in the studio that accidentally became a hit in 1970. So they called the band Hot Legs. That put out a song called neanderthal man that was a minor hit at the time and then shortly after that they also worked on neil sadaka's first album which became a major major hit and the band all kind of got together and thought we're making tons of money for other people and getting paid pennies like not even getting royalty deals and any of this stuff all four of us are songwriters all four of us are studio aces all four of us are lead singers we should just start a band and start getting that money for ourselves And their dream was to get signed to Apple Records. So they record a single, sent it to Apple, and something like six months later, they got an email back from Apple saying that they didn't have enough commercial appeal.
1: They get an email?
0: Uh, A letter, oh my God.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It was the first email ever sent. The first email ever sent. They were that inventive that they received an email. (laughs) Yep.
0: After Paul McCartney was resurrected, he invented the internet. Wow. Sent the band Hot with Al,
2: with Al gore <laughs> Wow. Yeah, we're rewriting history here. Oh my god. I'd buy that for a dollar, but yeah, so they said that it didn't have enough commercial. Yeah, they
0: Apple Apple Records, the most commercial label of all time, decided that Ten CC just didn't have what it took.
1: They probably googled their uh, Oh my god. ridiculous band names and <laughs> singles beforehand and were like, "No, you guys are weirdos. We know. We know you're sex criminals." <laughs>
0: Reportedly, the only music producer they could think of that was crazy enough to put out their music was a guy named Jonathan King, who owned a label called UK Records. And he heard their music and instantly loved it, signed them, put out their first record, which is their self-titled album. came out in 1972. uh, And that was based on the single that they sent him called Donna, which is an extremely Frank Zappa-influenced song. And I love it.
2: Is that one... like Frank Zappa in the greasy doo wop type of totally, way. Totally. Yeah, like,
0: I remember that song. Like reuben and the Jets era yeah. kind of thing, the real doo wop influenced. There's two different stories of how they got the band named 10cc. The most famous story is that it is slightly more than the average amount of the male ejaculate, meaning that the band was uh more potent than the average band.
2: You can hear that in their music by one cc. <laughs>
0: Even members of the band argue whether that is true or not. (laughs) Apparently, the unfortunately named LOL Cream maintains that that is definitely the reason they got their band name.
2: (laughs) His name is LOL LOL Cream. Yeah,
0: that's his his name.
2: Wow. So, see, they were all about that internet before it was a thing. (laughs) Right.
0: But uh, Jonathan King and Jonathan King, their, their manager, label executive, and Kevin Godley both maintain that it was based on a dream that jonathan king had where he was walking down the street and saw this marquee all in lights that just said 10cc the greatest band in the world and then he told him and they're like that's a good name we're gonna use it i thought 10cc were the worst band in the world according to one of their
1: songs yeah that's like a very half ass cover story right there you yeah can tell. it like, does kind of feel like it does. doesn't. that's it? not how dreams go
0: like when they're early 20s yeah let's we're gonna be the jizz band it's gonna be hilarious <laughs> Yeah, I guess...
1: they were Some of them thought better of it. Yeah,
0: some of them hit their 50s and were like, well, maybe it's time to grow up slightly. What are Steely Dan named after? That would be a dildo.
1: Okay, <laughs> moving on.
0: They released their second album called Sheet Music in 1974, which has a real famous Dilla sample on it, if you ever want to check out that record. Yes. They had apparently an awful recording contract with UK Records. They were getting 4% of royalties and... Claimed that at the time they were just broke, like couldn't afford to eat. And everything was super tough. They were having these minor hits, but were still struggling pretty hard. They'd signed a five year contract with UK Records, but were shopping around to try and get their contract bought out by a more major label. And apparently, they had a handshake deal with Virgin Records, we're just getting started. And two of the members went on an extended vacation and gave power of attorney to a manager who was supposed to broker the deal. And then when they got back, they'd sign them to Mercury Records without telling them or giving them permission, which they were initially kind of pissed off at. But it it worked out because the third record is this one, original soundtrack, which has set them all up with royalty money for life at this point. And apparently Mercury signed them on the strength of that single alone, because they'd already recorded the whole album for UK Records if they didn't get another deal. And Mercury came in and heard a couple of the tracks like this is a masterpiece, we have to have this band and did whatever they could to get a hold of it, which paid off.
2: Yeah, if you're a Dilla fan, Jay Dilla fan, and were not familiar with 10cc prior to starting this podcast and are still listening, the uh, sample on Donuts, working on it, that is 10cc working mm-hmm. on it it's right at the beginning of the album i feel like yeah too. and that's
0: off the song worst band in the worst world band that you also referenced earlier <laughs> yeah i love that song can you tell yeah this album made them tons of money they were on top of the world this was a number one hit for many weeks and they only put out one more album as a four piece after that in 1976 they did an album called how dare you and right after that album was recorded godly and cream left the band and the reasoning was that they felt that the other two guys were just becoming too soft, too stale, too predictable with their songs. And the other interesting thing is during the recording of the fourth album, Godly and Cream had started working on their first duo record under just the name Godly and Cream was an album called Consequence, which ended up being a triple LP rock album about nature becoming sentient and destroying humanity which featured Sarah Vaughan on vocals and uh, the comedian Peter Cook. Yeah, the other (laughs) Peter Cook. Narrating the whole thing. And apparently, Stewart and Goldman were just so against the idea of anybody in the band having a side project that they forced them to make a decision. Like, you either get to record that or you stay in the band. And Godly and Cream were already a little fed up with the direction, so they just took off at the height of the career and their money-making and recorded a series of much less successful but much more artistically interesting albums after that and then interestingly enough completely reinvented themselves in the mid 80s as some of the most go-to visual art and music video producers as music videos were just starting to become a thing they were the most in-demand production team for doing that they worked with tons of big name artists they did what's uh,
1: like one i've seen
0: they they did the Rocket music video for Herbie Hancock. Haven't seen it. Okay. They did uh, uh, When We Were Fab by George Harrison. Haven't seen it. They did it. some early Paul McCartney videos. Haven't seen any of those, I'm Maybe. assuming. Okay. I don't... Peter Gabriel.
1: Oh, I've seen that. Yeah. Did Which they one? Didn't,
0: they didn't do Sledgehammer, did they? They did not
2: do
1: Sledgehammer. They did the other one. Oh, haven't seen it then. Okay.
2: <laughs> I know that people remember them by their name for a song called Crying. Yes. Cry. Cry. Yes, yeah, just cry. That's that's that, that was the 30- video, Jeremy.
1: No. Did okay. they do the one uh no. where the hand's drawing itself? No. I don't know. Take on me.
0: Uh-huh. Aha. <laughs> Maybe.
1: Did they? Yeah.
0: I don't know. It's possible.
2: Aha or Norwegian. That's all I know about them. Oh. I don't know how that would have affected whether or not Godly and Cream did the video. I think the singer's name is Morton Harkett. I know nothing more about Aha.
0: And they were best friends with Godly and Crime. <laughs> Stewart and Goldman were unsure how to keep going after Godly and Crime left. Apparently, at one point, they considered changing the band name to 5CC. Is that? that numbers five? left?
2: You're pulling our leg, right? No, they
0: literally considered that Is- and uh, decided to keep the already perfect band name 10CC and keep going with that. They they did have a few more hits after that. One of the bigger ones was uh, "Dreadlock Holiday." Mm, yeah, terrible song.
2: Yeah, not so great. I I'll admit I kind of have a soft spot for the things we do for love.
1: I do like that song. Very, Is that post them leaving? Yeah, yeah. That's uh, right. That's after. like the only song of theirs I'd heard that I didn't even know I had heard.
0: Yeah, yeah. And if you listen to those albums, there, it's it's interesting. Like going back to what we talked about, how when they first wrote "I'm Not in Love." The other two guys thought there was something there, but it wasn't quite right. That's how I feel about all the Tennessee C stuff after they left. The songs are still good, and there's still a lot of interesting elements, because these are amazing songwriters and very talented musicians, but they just were lacking a little bit of that creative spark that the other two guys had. So a lot of these songs could have been a lot more interesting if the band had stayed together.
2: Yeah, I think those, I know they were two teams, but those four personalities really just blended into something unique that was definitely missing when the other the, the other two the two guys took off and mm-hmm. you would l- rate godly and cream's post 10 cc stuff higher than the uh, goldman and stewart material as 10 cc definitely
0: yeah. i mean i don't own any of the post godly and cream 10 cc records there's elements that are good but i don't really want to listen to an album all the way through of that stuff and i some of the godly and cream stuff i honestly like more than 10 cc It's different, and I think 10cc benefited a lot from having those opposite perspectives and the final product of these different perspectives, and the songwriting process created this really cool blend of quirky weirdness and pop sensibility that was lacking in the Godly and Cream era stuff that was, you know, in some ways suffered from a lack of editing but did create some really amazing experimental stuff.
2: Well, should we listen to the Godly and Cream opening song on this record?
0: Absolutely. Jeremy's number one favorite, One Night in Paris. Let's hear some of that three-part masterpiece.
3: i
1: Phones back on now that that's done you can't see it but jeremy
2: bailed as soon as we put that on and and he's back now i'm back
1: was it good guys Did you i wish like you it? just
0: keep an open mind that's what this show is all about you're being such a fucking hater right now true <laughs> so i have a theory of why you can find this record everywhere because it's obviously great and if anybody would listen to it with an open mind it would be their new favorite album but i'm not in love is a little different than most of the other songs on this album as we've heard from the clips
1: because it's the only good one some
0: may say i can just imagine so many people buying this record because they like that song and then dropping the needle on one night in paris and just bailing before all eight minutes of that song has even happened yet
2: (laughs) my copy of this album Is plays clean except for I'm Not In Love. Clearly the former owner just played that song exclusively.
0: I'm sure there's a lot of copies of this record that are exactly like that.
1: I just did a scientific study, actually, and one in three people will bail when they hear that song.
0: (laughs) It, It might be more than that. but And like Peter said earlier, I don't fault anyone for not liking this band, but maybe you've never heard this group before listening to this episode, and drop a note in the comments let us know what you think are you for or against are you on team jeremy or team sean and peter
1: <laughs> true
2: we're, we're
0: drawing a line here
2: like they used to do back in the day this I've, is civil war
0: <laughs> i've liked all of your records jeremy
1: Ah, i have well, nothing to say
2: <laughs> has there been any other selections so far on the show that people disliked that we've
1: Well there is that band the Supremes that Sean hates but then he like <laughs> But I love that record that yeah, we he Yeah he flip flopped on his feelings about it. Yeah. He's he's not consistent. It's really hard to pin him down on any one policy when it comes to True. the Supremes.
2: That's what we're all about here is uh changing your minds about artists. There are records that you might see and pass over. I mean I we haven't really talked about the album cover, but I always find this album cover really hard to look at, not in a gross way, but in just sort of an, an uninspired way. I, I don't find it...
1: I just see a half-baked art school cover. It's like, <laughs> here's all this technology, and it's to film this very simple old-time thing. You see what goes on here in Hollywood? You see what goes on here in the studio? Eh? Parallels? Yeah, no.
0: They didn't design the album cover, but maybe that's the idea. I think so. I like the album cover. That's just me. But yeah, so here's an example of give the album a shot. You hear one song you like, you've never heard anything about by the band. Give them a shot. See what you
1: think. Yeah. And you know what? I don't like it. I don't like the songs, by and large. But it was interesting, just to hear from a production standpoint for me, so... I'm not mad. I'm not mad I heard it. I wouldn't be mad if I bought it for a buck. Mm
0: -hmm. And, you know, next time you hear it, your opinion might change. Some of my favorite records I hated the first few times I listened to them.
1: We'll check in every third episode from here on out Uh and see if my opinion has changed.
2: (laughs) You find yourself waking up at night feeling that you just need to spin this one one more time.
0: Yeah, every third episode, we're just going to play One Night in Paris in its entirety and see. (laughs) Jeremy's going to give his live reaction.
1: Uh you're gonna like get custom made records with secret like we're gonna play the third track on this Whitney Houston album <laughs> <laughs> One Night in Paris. <laughs> well, this has been I'd buy that for a dollar. Sure has. My name is Jeremy Ruggles.
2: My name is Peter Cook.
1: I'm Sean Hartman. Thank you oh so much. hmm Bye.
2: Bye now.
3: That's the way. All crumbles
0: after all. Thank you for listening to us talk about music that we like. If you like talking about things that you like, you can talk about this podcast because obviously you've heard it now so you're a big fan. And there's a lot of ways you can express your newfound love for this podcast entitled I'd Buy That for a Dollar. There's a Patreon. You can give us money. Just search the the name of this podcast or you can also search i'd buy that podcast patreon you can talk to us on gmail learn more about our personal lives i'd buy that podcast at gmail.com you can uh you can add us on instagram i'd buy that podcast you can talk to us on facebook and also please like and subscribe and give us a review and tell all your friends and thank you for listening and we love you